The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, folks. Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson here with a quick explanatory note for you. You are listening to the audio of our weekly Trump trials and tribulations discussions as a live online discussion we have Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time online with Patreon supporters and with observers on YouTube uh, that we hope you were able to join. It's a great conversation this week, but we had breaking news come in Friday morning. One of the co-defendants in the Fulton County trial and one of the suspected unindicted co-conspirators in the federal January 6th trial, Kenneth Chesbro, pled guilty in the Georgia trial this morning. We have details on that from our trial correspondent, Anna Bauer. I talked about what went down with her in a separate conversation that we're going to edit the audio in at the end of this conversation from Thursday's Trump trial and tribulation session. So the first conversation you're going to hear took place on Thursday before we knew Chesbro pled out. You will then hear a conversation between me and Anna about that Chesbro plea. Hope you enjoy both conversations. Thank you for tuning in. You know, knowing that Chesbro's team uh, had re- rejected a plea offer previously. I, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I've, I've really got to think that um, there's probably some discussions going on today uh, with their client about what uh, their next move is, because now that Sidney Powell has pleaded, like Ben said, no one wants to be the last person to plea. Um, and it's better to get in, you know, now while you can before uh, the deals start to get a little bit less sweet. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 21st, 2023. It's another episode of Trump Trials and Tribulations. It was a breaking news day on Thursday. Sidney Powell, the Kraken lawyer, pled guilty in a plea deal in Fulton County Superior Court with District Attorney Fonnie Willis. It was one day before she and Ken Chesborough were going to trial, and we unpacked it all in the Virtual Jungle Studio. Joining me were Roger Parloff, Anna Bauer, Quinta Jurassic, Heyman Hahn. We talked about the plea. We talked about what it means for Ken Chesborough and the trial that jury selection is set to start in tomorrow. We talked about what happened this week in Tanya Chutkin's courtroom where a gag order was imposed on Donald Trump. And we talked about the defense motion to dismiss on presidential immunity grounds in that courtroom and a lengthy article about it by Quinta Jurassic. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, a surprise plea in Fulton County. Let's start with the day's news. 
We were in our morning editorial meeting just to set the scene. Anna was driving in an Uber to a meeting with a source. And all of a sudden, she bursts in on the conversation and says, Sidney Powell is pleading guilty. Got to jump on YouTube and watch the hearing. Bye. And disappears. And uh, so, Anna, when you jumped into the hearing, I'm only dramatizing this just a little bit. My favorite line of the hearing was when the prosecutor asked her how old she was. And she responded, oh, gosh, I'm 68, notwithstanding my exceedingly youthful appearance. Uh, What happened today and what do you make of it? I don't think you're dramatizing what happened in our morning meeting at all. That is exactly what happened. (laughs) And I apologize once again to Anna Hickey, who was in the middle of giving a presentation when I shouted, Sidney Powell is pleading guilty. Uh, but so, right. So when I, uh, joined the, the hearing, uh, it, it soon became clear that that is indeed what was going on. Sidney Powell had, uh, reached a plea agreement the day before, uh, she had previously been charged with several felony counts in the original indictment, including a RICO charge and then counts 32 to 37 of the indictment as well were discrete criminal charges against Powell related to uh, the events in Coffee County, Georgia, in which there was an unauthorized uh, uh, access and copying of voting machines in, in Coffee County. And, and so in exchange for, you know, pleading guilty, Sidney Powell got those charges reduced down to six misdemeanor counts for conspiracy to commit election interference. And in terms of other, you know, conditions of this plea, she must uh, write an apology letter to the state citizens of the state of Georgia. Ben, I know that that is one of your favorite uh, special conditions that prosecutors have been asking for uh, when they've been reaching these plea agreements with Fulton County defendants. But beyond that, she must also uh, have a $6,000 fine, $2,700 in restitution for replacement of the equipment in Coffee County. And then the, you know, she gets first offender status, which means that if she abides by all of the conditions of her probation and of her agreement, then uh, she will eventually potentially be able to have these charges kind of erased, so to speak, so that she will be able to say in the future that she has never been convicted of, of any crimes. Um, and the sentence that was recommended by the prosecution was six months of probation. So no jail time for Sidney Powell, it looks like. And then finally, the big thing and the thing that is really important here is the fact that Sidney Powell agreed to testify truthfully against uh, co-defendants in this matter, any future proceedings. She also agreed to turn over any documents uh, that are subject that are not subject to lawful assertions of privilege that were made in good faith prior to the, the deal being reached. It's kind of unclear to me exactly what that means, um, you know, to what extent she would have had to have raised privilege previously over certain documents. Um, of course, she has raised attorney client privilege, for example, uh, you know, in different settings, uh, for example, before the January 6th committee and that kind of thing. So uh, it's unclear to me exactly what the extent of prosecutors uh, access will be to her documents 
but it, it still is a very big deal. This is the not the first defendant to plead guilty in full in the Fulton County case, but it is the first person who potentially has some really critical knowledge about Trump's inner circle uh, and and who was involved in some of those very high level discussions that were going on at the White House, for example. Um, and then, you know, in in this period prior to, you know, December of 2020, when a lot of these folks were, uh, you know, talking with Lynn Wood and Mike Flynn and and those kinds of folks at this uh, plantation in South Carolina, which was a big subject of investigation by Fulton County prosecutors as this uh, investigation was kind of ongoing for many months with the special purpose grand jury. So I think that's a good summary of what happened, Ben, and hopefully I'm not missing something. But to me, it's a very big deal that this happened, although it's maybe not surprising given the charges and evidence against Sidney Powell. And the fact that the case was uh, going to jury selection tomorrow. Right. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of details of this that I don't think have gotten enough attention. One is um, that the trial starting tomorrow is happening anyway, because while Sidney Powell has pled out, the estimable Ken Chesborough has not. As far as we know, was Chesborough offered a similar deal and what happened? Right. So, I mean, we do know that Chesborough was offered a deal earlier this uh, month. It was rejected. Uh, ABC first reported this uh, yesterday, and I can confirm that, you know, that is, uh, in fact, the the case that he rejected a plea deal. Um, I think that it's unclear right now what what exactly happened and what the circumstances were around that uh, rejection. But, you know, if I had to speculate, I would say that, you know, Chesbro and Powell, they're both people, right, who have significant exposure at the federal level. Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro are both two of the uh, unindicted co-conspirators who were mentioned in the federal indictment brought against Trump uh, for election interference. And I, I think that probably something that could be going on here is that maybe there's some uh, hesitation by some of the defendants who have uh, risk of criminal exposure at the federal level to accept a state level deal that maybe isn't coextensive with what's going on in Jack Smith's investigation. So I, I think that that's part of the calculus. You know, I also think, too, that Chesbro, as opposed to Powell, certainly has a, a stronger uh, case in terms of, you know, thinking uh, that there's, you know, more arguments that a jury might be able to latch on to uh, because the facts there are pretty much, you know, the if, if you look at the case against Chesbro, it's kind of like the prosecution and the defense are probably going to agree on a lot of those facts. And it really just comes down to the question of unlawful intent. Uh, And, you know, that's exactly the conversation that we had with uh, Chesbro's attorneys when they came on the podcast is, you know, that this question of intent is crucial. Whereas with Powell, it's very different. It seems like, you know, the, the case there was just much more solid. Well, and um, also it's a smash and grab job. I mean, she's alleged to have organized a, effectively a break in and theft of a bunch of stuff. And, you know, her name is on the check. Her name is on the mm-hmm. contract. 
she's got a she had a real problem. Uh, you know, I'm still a little surprised Chesborough hasn't pled out yet, but I suppose there's time for that before the hearing tomorrow, uh, before yeah. ju- jury selection starts tomorrow. Yeah. And also, you know, it, there's still time, even if jury selection starts, you know, there it, it's possible that they could reach an agreement even, you know, after jury selection starts. So uh, maybe it's uh, something that they're considering. You know, I, I'm not sure uh, if it is, especially after today, but you would have to think that uh, Sidney Powell's plea agreement would really have them thinking about that. So I, I'm very much going to be keeping my eye on the docket and on Judge McAfee's YouTube channel to see what happens here in the next few days, because this is this does feel very different from Scott Hall's plea agreement, yeah. which we all thought was a big deal, knowing kind of the many different elements of of the alleged RICO conspiracy that Scott Hall could have been involved in. But I think that, you know, Sidney Powell, it's just a whole other level of, you know, her involvement and knowledge. So I will will be a little bit uh, surprised if there's not a lot of these defendants who aren't Ken Chesbro who are considering, uh, you know, going for a plea right now. Right, right. You don't want to be last on the plea bus. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Next question. One thing she has to do to make this plea is waive her Fifth Amendment rights because she's got to testify now against, uh, I guess it's 16 remaining co-defendants, 17 remaining co-defendants. And she's got to answer questions. She still has exposure at the federal level where she is unindicted co-conspirator number X, I think four, but uh, um, she must be expecting an indictment. Do you think, have you heard any indication that maybe this means she has some understanding with federal prosecutors or is this a kind of roll the dice and resolve the state case and figure you'll deal with the feds later? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I am still trying to figure that out. I, so I don't know the answer, but I, especially with how concrete this evidence seemed to be uh, against Sidney Powell, and especially knowing recent reporting that the special counsel has been more interested in these voting machine breaches you know, I would really have to wonder, and I would be very surprised if if uh, her counsel had not at least tried to get some kind of coextensive agreement. But these are investigations that are on different tracks. And so I just really can't say. And and it may be something where Jack Smith doesn't feel that he, you know, needs to have an agreement uh, with Sidney Powell because he's going to do what he's going to do. And Every public indication has been that uh, that uh, Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith are not working together. So I, I really am not sure. It may just be a roll of the dice. And she's hoping that, uh, you know, she will be uh, valuable for Jack Smith when the time comes. And, and if it does come for uh, federal prosecutors to come to them and say, let's make a deal. But I'd be curious to hear what everyone else thinks, because I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So does anybody else have thoughts on this for her to for Rafferty to let her plead? 
knowing that she's got to waive her Fifth Amendment rights, that she's got to testify, that she's got to testify on a whole lot of matters in which she presumably has federal exposure in an already indicted case in which she's named as an unindicted co-conspirator. Quinta or Heyman, do either of you have thoughts on this? Yeah, just one one quick thought. I mean, so I've obviously been following this less closely than than Anna, but I will say I was really surprised uh, when Powell pleaded, actually. I mean, if you kind of abstract out, it makes a great deal of sense for her to plead. But I think you can kind of separate the Trump defendants into categories of people who have taken a kind of defiant, you know, never surrender, you can take my life, but you'll never take my freedom approach. And the people who have just kind of decided to cut their losses and have not been, you know, so loud publicly, for example. And Powell, I guess, has definitely been quiet recently. But before this, I would have put her pretty firmly in the former category. Um, And what makes me say that is that I've been following her various uh, bar discipline cases. She now has two against her in different states, which is kind of unusual, as well as sanctions uh, levied against her by a Michigan judge. And in her filings, uh, appealing those sanctions and uh, objecting to the ethics charges against her, she has consistently over the last year or so been very defiant, has not backed down from her claims about election fraud. I don't know if she's actually said the election was stolen, but she's she's really doubled down on the idea that there were you know indications of irregularities that were concerning, uh, not admitting that she did anything wrong and relying on these kind of really crazy affidavits of people who were claiming they'd seen wrongdoing. And so she really seemed to be sticking to her guns. And in that sense, I was quite surprised to to see her plea. And that makes me wonder whether there might be, you know, if if she's decided that it's really time to kind of change tactics, that perhaps that that might indicate that there are conversations going on with Jack Smith's team as well. I don't know. Um, but I do think that's kind of useful context, maybe, for uh, at least framing the discussion here a bit. Yeah, nothing concentrates the mind like a hanging. I will just say on this point that uh, there is no way the feds let her plead to a misdemeanor. And I think you don't resolve this case on the basis of a plea unless you also at least have a, a an understanding that you're going to have to plead out at the federal level as well, because when this case goes to trial, you're going to have to answer questions that are going to implicate you. And so I think take this as an indication that she intends to reach a plea deal with Jack Smith. And that will, I, I think federal policy is pretty clear that you don't plead out a case like that to a misdemeanor. Uh, So look for uh, at least one significant felony plea. Uh, At least I would expect that. Uh, Jacob, you have a question. Well, that's let's. So I've had the over under at 10 for pleas in the Georgia case. I was curious who would take the over or the under in that case. Ooh, great question. Um, I would take the over on that. Um, uh, I, I think, you're going to have uh, an increasing rolling 
stone gathering no moss uh, as it heads down the hill. The more people plead, the more people are going to plead. But uh, we're at two right now. Uh, what do you think, Anna? I mean, I think, yeah, I I, I think maybe over, but I, I really just can't. I don't know. At this point, I'm, I'm with you, Ben, but I, I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> I bet we're going to get one more within the next 24 mm-hmm. hours, maybe two more. And um, I think you're going to, you're going to, you know, the first horse that leaves the barn, it doesn't look like a stampede, but uh, you don't want to be the last person to take the plea in this. The deal gets worse and worse as you go. Yes, Roger. You know, listening to Anna describe the plea, I was surprised just how, I mean, it's sort of like an offer you can't refuse. It's so light what she's being offered on its face. You know, it's uh, it's misdemeanors that go away eventually. And uh, it's like you said, it's a first offender sort of thing. Uh, It's it's sort of hard to if she's hoping to uh, win her uh, bar uh, proceedings, this would, you know, keep her in the bar. It's very attractive. I mean, if they're going to offer deals like that, they will get uh, they will get more than 10. Yeah. I mean, look, they've put out I, I think they are particularly given the disparity between the amount of time you can get if you go to trial and lose and the relative generosity of this deal. Although six years of probation is a is is not trivial just because it's a long period of time, but it is probation and it's not a felony plea. But I agree. I think as long as that deal's on the table for some of these people, it's too attractive to pass up, except for Ken Chesborough, who, as Quinta says, does seem to be having the, you, you know, the freedom uh, thing with the Mel Gibson uh, thing going. So I, you know, I would still take the over on 10. All right. Um, we have, uh, so we have one other question that we should, which is uh, Josh asks, uh, how does the plea affect federal cases? I think we've answered that, which is that it, first of all, mostly affects her federal case, assuming there is one, which I assume there will be. But of course, her testimony could be significant in the federal case against Trump as well. Remember, she was present at that famous December 18th meeting at the White House, where they discussed declaring martial law and seizing voting machines and all that jazz. And so um, I think it could affect, it potentially affects her case very much, but I think it could also affect the larger uh, discussion. All right, let's turn to Judge Tanya Chutkin in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, who imposed a gag order and this week. And I want to start by saying that I apologize for last week's use of a paper gag, which ripped. Today, we are using a full shirt gag, which will not rip. Heyman, you were there. Walk us through what happened. Wow, Ben. Um, I don't know if I can do that while watching you <laughs> with the gag in your mouth. But uh, yeah, so 
Judge Tanya Chakin heard um, from Trump's lawyers and the government about whether to accept the government's motion to have a gag order on on what Trump can say during uh, the the trial. And the reason why the government wanted this was because they think that his truth social posts and other interviews have kind of ended up intimidating witnesses um, or could intimidate witnesses. And they want to make sure that the trial can proceed without there being a tainting of the jury pool. And the government's overall argument was that, look, this is not them trying to infringe on Trump's rights as a candidate. They're not trying to um, gag him in so far as he can't exercise his his First Amendment rights to talk about his candidacy. But it's more about this narrow, we don't want to be putting people on blast who might like need to end up taking the stand and give give testimony. So that that was the um, that was the government's main argument. And then the Trump side of things was like, this is just another one of the special counsels trying to to silence Trump and not not give him the opportunity to really have a fair campaign. And it kind of feeds into their overall uh, Trump stance that this whole prosecution, of course, has been politically motivated and that the whole thing top to bottom is this kind of conspiracy. So um, that's that those were the kind of two sides. And we can definitely get into the details on everything. But there were a lot of interesting moments where uh, Judge Chuckin really tried to tease out exactly what the gag order was going to look like. And I thought that that was really interesting because we we got into very granular examples of like, you know, what can you say and can you not say? And I think that by the end, she had a clear vision of what she wanted to allow Trump to be able to say um, in a way that got much more narrow than, for instance, what the the original motion from the government said. So um, she she definitely had like a professorial ambience and she was very, very, very critical. And, and I think she did a great job of really trying to get to the bottom of exactly what the government wanted to see and exactly what um, Trump's concerns were. So in your piece about it, uh, you portrayed uh, Trump's lawyer, Lauro, as, uh, you know, sort of flamboyantly making points that Judge Chutkin kept kind of reminding him were, did not appear to be directed at her. How do you understand, first of all, what was Lauro doing that prompted that? And secondly, how do you understand uh, the dynamic between the two of them? Yeah, well, so I want to start by saying that I thought Laura was quite effective overall. I had seen him in the pri- in the prior hearing for the trial date setting. And at that point, I thought he was, pardon me, but a little bit whiny and, um, you know, just kind of like asking for, for leniency about, you know, we need time to go all the- through all these documents. And um, so he-, he had clearly even then kind of a, a way of having this kind of rapport with Judge Chuckin uh, that I thought was interesting, but less effective then. This time, I thought he was pretty quick on his feet and was able to banter back and forth with with Judge Chuckin. So what he was doing, Ben, in answer to your question, was trying to point out, you know, 
these are things that any presidential candidate should be able to to say. And I, I should a uh, Trump should, for instance, be able to talk about why D.C. is a terrible city if he thinks that D.C. needs to be better managed, quote unquote, or, or if he wants to talk about what he perceives to have been a Justice Department that was weaponized against him, then he he should be able to say something like that. So he kind of started to get into, again, the similar kinds of rhetoric we've heard from the campaign. And so for Judge Chuckin, it kind of blurred the lines of, you know, are you talking to me or are you trying to get a message out about what, you know, the, the Trump campaign has been at its core? And so she had to kind of be like, just to be clear, there are things that can be distinguished here. Like you can say that, DC needs uh, to get rid of its rats, for example, which it does. Um, but you don't need to say something like that targets the Biden administration, for instance, so head on and then like kind of create inferences about because Biden is corrupt and this whole thing is corrupt and like uh, Jack Smith and the rest of everyone are thugs. So I think that's where she definitely had a, a lot of back and forth and had to remind him a number of times, you know, uh, this isn't campaign rhetoric time. This is what exactly is is the problem with um, certain things that Trump could say that could actually lead to people not wanting to say or take the stand for fear of reprisal or for fear of like violence to their life. And was your impression that when she was saying to him, your audience for that statement doesn't appear to be me. What she was saying is you're saying the things that the, that you know that the client wants you to say, or was she saying that you're delivering campaign rhetoric? In other words, was the audience Trump or was the audience potential voters? Not that she said, but, um, what do you think she was accusing him of there? That's really, really hard. I mean, I think that in some ways she probably was suggesting that um, he was saying things that would have made Trump proud and like what Trump would have wanted to hear his his lawyer say. But again, the lines are so blurred between what Trump himself says and what he wants the voters to hear and and so it kind of almost becomes the same thing in some ways. Um, so that that was my sense. I, I wasn't, I don't know, it would be great to ask her exactly what she meant. But I mean, she she used the term campaign rhetoric a number of times to just say, don't bring that here. But again, if if your campaign, if your campaign is in part on kind of sowing this idea that the the locuses of power are corrupt and that you need to kind of fight back against the 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 state and stuff i feel like what what laura was trying to defend trump's right to be able to say ends up becoming the same thing there um so i i, I don't know if that's an answer to your question but it, i think the answer is that it's very blurry and um so then that's why she ended up going to to the hypotheticals in the end to to try and narrow the question exactly about uh the campaign So, Roger and Anna, you both were there as well. Do either of you have a sense of what you think the answer to that question is? Is there is this a situation where she's saying, I know you're talking to the client right now, not to me, but I want to hear your arguments to me? Or is she saying, you know, this isn't a frickin campaign ad, guys? I agree with Heyman that it's really sort of one and the same thing. 
uh, it's what Trump wants to hear because Trump is on message as far as the campaign goes. So uh, I thought, you know, Trump wants to say over and over, the Biden administration is silencing me. The Biden administration is is persecuting me. And uh, he was trying to say that. And that's both, you know, his id and it's his campaign message. So it's one and the same. Gotcha. All right. So, Roger, what did she end up ruling? Uh, uh, there's been a lot of gag order press. But what is the substance of the gag order? It's uh, it's it's interesting. It was uh, I think it was shrewd. She divided the government's request into five rough ca- categories and she granted uh, three and denied two. The first category was uh, statements about the District of Columbia and and jurors indirectly, because he was making tweets sort of along the line. He was saying, calling D.C. Uh, filthy, crime-ridden embarrassment to the country. And um, uh, she decided not to restrict those. Her, her theory was that uh, I have jury selection. I will go through the process. I can weed out people that are offended by that. She, she did hint that she knows coming down the line, they're going to ask for a motion to change venue. And she hinted that that's going to come by, back to bite him in the butt. That, you know, if you're insulting the jury and then you're saying, uh, well, I need to go away because they're biased against me. Uh, you've sort of created your own, you know, you've tried to exacerbate the problem yourself. And, and uh, it's sort of like, you know, well, uh, uh, the old line about you know, the guy that shoots his parents and then says, I'm, well, I'm an orphan, you know, it, 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 I think she's going there. The second category were statements against Biden, like uh, crooked Joe Biden and um uh, the D- Department of Justice, the Department of Injustice in, in a lot of his tweets. Uh, and also the idea that the Biden administration, that the prosecution is politically motivated um, and that, uh, you know, it's Biden that is manipulating everything. She's not going to stop that either. Um, she said that Biden is fair game. He's not even a party. Even the government said that the Biden, uh, you know, even the special prosecutor Department of Justice, you know, that's not really a party. And also, as far as uh, this notion, I think the government did want, special prosecutor did want to stop him from saying, um, you know, this is all Joe Biden bringing this prosecution. It's not true. She said, you know, uh, there are, you know, I, I can't rule that out to a mathematical certainty. And also she quoted a line from, there's a Supreme Court case very important here called Gent- Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada or maybe Gentilly. And um, uh, there was a line in there. It's not I don't think it's a majority, but four of the nine justices were saying, you know, criticizing the exercise of state power, which is what a prosecution, criminal prosecution is, is, uh, you know, core First Amendment stuff. So if this is your theory of the case, that this is a, you know, politically motivated prosecution, she's not going to stop that. So I thought that was very smart and shrewd. The other categories were attacking uh, the prosecutors, uh, their staffs and uh, their families. And uh, she said that's off. Uh, this is stuff like 
deranged uh, Jack Smith and thugs. She calls them thugs. And the point is not that uh, these are mean or, you know, uh, crude or or, uh, insulting. Uh, She made it clear. She mentioned twice this line, this famous line from Henry II, uh, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? You know, and then shortly after that, the knights go out and they murder Thomas Beckett, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's what she's saying is happening here. This guy, he calls people thugs and it means somebody needs to get rid of the thugs. And uh, it's not just she's not speculating. There's a record and the, and the and the government presented a record. Some of it's under seal, but some of it's, you know, available. And we know what happened to Ruby Freeman. You know, we know what happened to Brad Raffensberger and his wife. And so, you know, he says these things and the more unstable among his, you know, followers do act. And they uh, they say uh, they harass and they intimidate and they make uh, threats of bodily harm. And um, and she's and no one is allowed to do that. And he, she doesn't care if this is a presidential uh, election. She's not going to permit that. So um, that was out. Then the fourth category was uh, court personnel and families. And uh, this, of course, uh She's not including herself. Um, yeah, I thought that was actually really classy of her to, yeah. to leave out herself. She gets martial protection. Court staff don't. She's the accountable actor. And I think just saying, like, we're not talking. You can say whatever you want about me, but leave the bailiff out of it. Exactly. <laughs> is, 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 was a was a smart move and actually a classy move. A classy move. And and uh, none of that is, uh, you know, hypothetical stuff. Uh, obviously, you know, Justice Arthur Engeron's clerk was targeted uh, by by Trump, uh, you know, uh, Schumer's boyfriend or girlfriend. And um, uh, and of course, she. She, uh, uh, Justice, I mean, uh, Judge Chutkin uh, got this racist uh, death threat for which somebody is being prosecuted in uh, Abigail Shree, I think, in uh, Texas. So um, anyway, I thought that was uh, classy, like you say. And then the last category were witnesses, uh, discussion of expected witnesses, expected testimony, their credibility, uh, that's that's out. So all of that, I thought, was very, very sharp. The one thing that surprised me was, you know, the next day when the actual written ruling came out, um, it was very short. And um, there were some things uh, that it did not include, uh, you know, that the, what the government's language they had proposed would uh, incorporate you know, one of the magic words from Gentile, like um, things that cause uh, substantial likelihood of material prejudice, and they're about witnesses and this and that and that. She dispensed with that. Uh, she said, uh, it's, it's very short. It says, all interested parties in this matter, including the parties and their counsel, are prohibited from making any public statements or directing others to make any public statements that target 
uh, and then the categories, the special counsel, uh, you know, and his staff, the defense counsel and staff, any other, you know, and so on. That word target is a little a little confusing to me. Does it mean uh, reference or does it have to be derogatory, inflammatory and uh, intimidating, which is another phrase that the government had used? Uh, so that's a little surprising. Another thing that was a little surprising was in the body of the order. She used the language she found as a fact that um, what he was doing, these statements were causing, quote, a significant and immediate risk of intimidation and so on. That's not uh, the language that I've seen in, in court rulings. Maybe I haven't seen all the court rulings. You know, I've seen one level, which is that one I mentioned, um, substantial likelihood of material prejudice. The other is the clear and present danger uh, uh, standard, the highest. And so she said a significant and immediate risk. I don't know uh, if there's case law on that, but it seems safer to use something that's tried and true. Um, but maybe I'm just missing uh, some controlling D.C. precedent. OK, so that actually brings us very neatly to Morali's question. Sir, the floor is yours. Yeah. So the gag order is restraints of speech, First Amendment, blah, blah, blah. Is this subject to interlocutory appeal? And if so, what do you all think? Uh, how do you think the DC Circuit and Supreme Court will go? Uh, or if it's not subject to appeal until after a verdict, is there grounds here, potential grounds here for setting aside the verdict if if the, the restraint of speech is found to be unconstitutional? Yeah, so uh, the things you've covered up in the blah, blah, blah there are actually worth exposing. So let me, for for those for whom... The blah, blah, blah covered up the explanatory material. Let me clarify. Normally, uh, you can preempt all kinds of standing uh, uh, requirements by claiming that something is a restraint on speech and First Amendment chills can be a basis for pre-enforcement challenges that would normally not be justiciable yet. And so uh, this question is a very ripe one. I will take only this, the last part of it, which is that the, that it can, it, it is almost certainly not the case that you would set aside a jury verdict because of an unrelated or a, uh, because of a First Amendment violation within the context of the trial. Um, but uh, Roger, and Quinta, I know you have both thought about this question a little bit. Uh, is this subject to interlocutory appeal? And uh, are we going to see a quick appeal? He's already appealed. <laughs> so yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. So that makes my task easy on, on answering that. Uh, I, I believe there is an interlocutory appeal, but I don't believe there would be any basis for asking for a stay. I don't think it will uh, stall the case. There's no, you know, uh, there would be no reason. Uh, um, you, but uh, that's an independent thing. So uh, I'm not worried about it in that respect. Quinta, uh, you mentioned that you were also had seen some concerns about the use of the word target in the order. How do you think that's going to fly in front of the DC circuit? Yeah, so I'll say I am not super familiar with the doctrine here, so I'm not going to 
weigh in on on my own uh, read of the situation, but I will say that I've seen um, Ken White, better known as Popat, on Blue Sky suggesting that use of the word target is perhaps overly vague. Ken uh, does defense work and and usually takes a pretty strong view of the First Amendment, but I think that it's so it's it's worth keeping that in mind. Um, but I certainly you know it's potentially open to criticism along those lines. Um, I also noted that uh, I believe Charlie Savage's write up, uh, yes, Charlie Savage and Alan Foyer's write up in the New York Times also noted uh, along the lines of what Roger was saying, concerns that Target is potentially vague and that it doesn't just include uh, statements that are disparaging, inflammatory, or intimidating, which is what the government had asked for. Um, So that Times article doesn't go any further or cite specific um, objections or specific folks who have raised potential objections. But I think the fact that it's showing up in this Times overview suggests that uh, there's there's some murmurs of potential discontent there. So it will be certainly interesting to see what the D.C. Circuit does with it. Um, we haven't gotten any briefing about it. Uh, Trump just filed the notice of appeal, I think, uh, yesterday or, or Tuesday. Um, so it's early days yet. One thing uh, is, of course, you could easily imagine the government, if it's worried about this point and doesn't want to defend it on appeal, simply moving Judge Chutkin to narrow the order to speech that is inflammatory, disparaging, tends to provoke violence, etc., uh, and, you know, she can um, like she is not losing jurisdiction over this case. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. So, Quinta, speaking of Judge Chutkin, um, you have a, a lengthy piece this week on the uh, uh, motion before her to dismiss uh, the entire case on grounds of presidential immunity. Uh, this is a matter that we have spoken about both of the past two weeks. We're going to be speaking about it for each of the next several, I suspect. I think the government's response is do presently. Uh, I mean to uh, read this briefing extremely carefully. You have been, uh, you have tied it to a, a very long running interest of both yours and mine, which is the president's, the relationship between the person of the president and the institution of the presidency uh, as reflected in the oath of office and as embodied in the medieval theological conception of the king as having two bodies. So, 
give us the unified field theory, King's two bodies, presidential immunity from criminal prosecution, post-presidency, oath of office, What's it all got to do with one another? Yeah, so that that was a real wind up right there. Um, Let so it this- never be said. I don't know how to do an introduction <laughs> for one of my people. Yeah, that was like a it's a greatest hits tour, really, of everything that I've written on lawfare for the last few years. So what I what I'm writing about here, this idea of the king's two bodies, um, as you say, comes from uh, the historian Ernst Kantorowitz's writing about uh, what he called medieval political theology, and the idea is essentially that the the medieval king has there's the body politic, which is sort of the institution of the monarchy that persists across the uh, the lives of individual kings. So that's the body natural. And I had argued um, in a piece that was maybe more serious than it quite let on uh, early on in the Trump administration that Trump's uh, at real Donald Trump and at POTUS Twitter accounts were the king's two Twitter accounts. Um, the, you know, the Twitter natural and the Twitter politic, one might say. And, and, uh, there's been some really interesting work done, uh, in a more serious vein on this topic by, uh, Daphne Renan, um, who wrote a really great law review article about it, essentially arguing that this sort of tension between the institutional presidency and the figure of the particular person who happens to be occupying it is something that is really, uh, present in conceptions of the presidency since the founding and sort of resonates throughout it. And what I'm trying to argue here is essentially that, you know, Trump really brings to the fore a lot of those tensions that Daphne identifies in the sense that he at points magnifies the distinction between the body politic and the body natural by sort of just appearing, you know, unpresidential or modern day presidential, as he sometimes called it, you know, with his, his, coarseness, uh, his unusual approach to the office. Um, there's sort of a, a gap between the man and office. But then at the at other times, he sort of tries to collapse it entirely and argue that, you know, he's justified in using presidential powers for personal ends. Or in the case of this motion to dismiss, that the the sort of the pre- shield of presidential immunity, um, as described in Nixon v. Fitzgerald, should shield him from criminal accountability for even actions that were arguably an abuse of his office. Um, he doesn't say that last part. That's me. <laughs> um, and so that this, this motion, which is also, as we talked about last time, trying to extend this idea of presidential immunity from the civil context in which the Supreme Court has established that it does exist to the criminal context, which is sort of untrodden ground, is really stating very directly this kind of question that I think uh, various legal institutions and commentators, um, Ben, you and I included, have faced over the course of the Trump administration of not only how do we define the difference between these sort of two bodies, and but how do you systematically draw a line? Um, because it can it can seem very easy to say, you know, well, of course he shouldn't be immune for such and such action. But drawing that line in a systematic way can actually be really difficult, um, you know, to to make sure that it's not going to potentially infringe on future presidential action. I would argue, uh, and I didn't quite get to this in the piece, but that the the actions on January 6th are so extreme and so far outside of the scope of what we want presidents to do that it's actually less hard to make that argument than it would have been in other instances like 
uh, Trump firing FBI Director James Comey, for example. But I think precisely because it has been so difficult for various various institutions from the Supreme Court and the trial ban cases to uh, special counsel Robert Mueller to lower courts to kind of draw that dividing line, it's going to be really, really interesting to see when we finally get the special counsel's uh, response just how they make that argument. Um, and as you say, if I have done the math right, which is not a sure thing, I believe that uh, their opposition is due today. So hopefully we should be getting that soon. All right. Uh, we are going to go to audience questions. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, so I'm closing the questions now uh, so that we have a chance of getting through them. We're going to start with uh, Nathan's question, who wants me to read it. Uh, what leaders in history or fiction remind you of Trump more than anybody else? So actually what we're going to do with this question, because this is a hard question to answer on the fly, we're going to come back to this question at the end so that everybody has a good chance to think of who is the leader in history or fiction that most reminds you of Trump. And we're going to uh, come back to it at the end, I'm going to demand an answer from everybody. Uh, in the meantime, Jonathan Cedarbaum, who should be on this panel, not asking questions of it. So for those who don't know Jonathan, uh, Jonathan has been the head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. More recently, he was the legal advisor to the National Security Council in the White House. He is a major league uh, national security lawyer and friend, uh, a dear friend of the site. Uh, and uh, the floor is yours, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I only pay Ben a small commission for those marketing efforts. Um, I think I had submitted, I, I, I apologize. I think I had submitted a question earlier when we were talking about Sidney Powell. And yes. it, was just, it was just a question about her law licenses. Uh, and the question was whether the guilty pleas to the misdemeanors by themselves would jeopardize her law license. Or so law license. I believe so. This is actually a complicated question. And um, I'm going to I'm going to say what I know about it and then see what Anna knows about it and then turn it over to Quinta, who's been following the Sidney Powell uh, uh, disciplinary proceedings. But. So first of all, I think there was a, an explicit uh, part of the plea agreement that said this was not a crime of moral turpitude. And I think that was a specific effort to make clear that it does not threaten her law license. Uh, that said, her law license is, that may be an academic point because her law license is, I think, toast for other reasons that uh, uh, Quinto can go into. But Anna, am I right about the plea deal and the, the significance of the not a crime of moral turpitude language? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, crimes of moral turpitude uh, can also be relevant for uh, immigration purposes, but that's not a concern with Sidney Powell because, uh, you know, as far because as I'm aware, an alien, it's <laughs> not that she's from another country, it's right. that she's from another planet. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right, exactly. And and we saw the same thing happen with Scott Hall's plea deal, uh, where they specified that the the crimes to which he pleaded to were not crime or, or were not considered crimes of uh, moral turpitude. And and the reason for that in his context was not because he's an attorney, but because it has to do with his bail bondsman license. Uh, so I I think that for any of these folks who are attorneys, whether that's Chesbro or Ray Smith or Bob Cheeley, all of these attorneys who are concerned about their bar licenses, we would probably see something very similar. And I think that's exactly what was going on there, Ben, with, with that moral uh, turpitude question. I know a lot of people had questions about that. So hopefully that clears it up. Yeah. And, and I take it the, the, the point is that not that the state of Georgia or the Fulton County DA's office is protecting her from bar discipline, but it's simply saying you're, you're, we're not going to make it worse. You're on your own on that. Okay. So Quinta, if Sidney Powell is on her own in the bar discipline mm-hmm. department and Georgia isn't going to make it worse, how fucked is she? Well, I don't know if I would I would put it in quite those terms. I should say I did look up the rules for the uh, the Texas bar and confirm that yes, so uh, crimes of moral turpitude subject a lawyer to compulsory discipline, um, and so this is not in that category. Uh, there are a number of other crimes that can also subject a lawyer to compulsory discipline, but I don't believe that any of the crimes for which uh, she's she's pleaded guilty are in that category. It does say that. Uh, if a criminal conviction of a serious or int- intentional crime is at issue, um, then there is compulsory discipline. I don't know how Texas dis- defines uh, a serious or intentional crime. So so I guess we'll see. Um, in terms of where Powell's various disciplinary proceedings are at, so she is in the somewhat unusual position of actually being subject to two disciplinary proceedings in two different states from two different state bars at the same time. And how does one do that, given that one, she is not a member of more than she's, two? She's a busy woman. Uh, so she was, uh, so she is barred in Texas. The Texas State Bar brought charges against her. I'm not quite sure when, but that has been going on for quite a while. And this is over her role in the Kraken litigation. Um, I don't actually have the charges in, in front of me right now, but uh, it has to do essentially with the fact that she's filing a ton of litigation on basically completely frivolous claims. And and I, in one instance, I think allegedly uh, doctored uh, an exhibit as well. So there's a Texas case that is in a bit of a weird situation where it was thrown out by the judge because the Texas bar mislabeled the exhibits in its filing. Uh, and then the judge... Uh, refuse to reconsider that. So it is now on appeal, whether or not that not, not, not her, the, the final uh, decision, but just whether or not this should be thrown out because of the mislabeled exhibits. I just checked the docket um, in the Texas appeals court. And it, it seems like a briefing has was filed in late September um, and that there will not be an oral argument. I'm not sure how quickly uh, Texas appeals courts move, but we'll see. Um, and then there is uh, this Michigan case. So yes, typically you are not disciplined by a bar of a state in which you are not barred. Uh, the Michigan bar is arguing that because Sidney Powell filed Kraken litigation in that state, 
that she has essentially brought herself within their jurisdiction and that they are bringing bar charges against her and a number of the other Kraken lawyers on the Michigan case. Powell uh, is pretty unsurprisingly arguing that they don't have jurisdiction over her. I just checked the Michigan uh, bar's website and it doesn't seem like they have updated their list of filings since midsummer. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that nothing has been happening. It just means that they nobody updated the website. Um, so I'm not 100% sure where that stands. All of which is to say is that Sidney Powell is certainly still facing these proceedings, although because of the weirdness of the jurisdictional question in Michigan and then this sort of procedural screw up um, uh, by the Texas bar, I actually think that her bar license might be in better shape than you initially suggested. Interesting. Okay. Um, Remember, however, that she is still facing potential major federal charges and it is possible that bar discipline is being kind of held in abeyance for some of that. We have two questions from Auntie, uh, our, our estimable uh, Finland Bureau. Auntie, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. So do you foresee any uh, changes in uh, defensive, defensive strategy on part of the Trump team uh, in light of the uh, Sidney Powell plea and uh, any pleas that would follow it? And uh, could you briefly run run down the, uh, the NBC's motion in DC trial to have it televised and uh, what's the potential impact I- impact of that? Thank you. All right. Who wants to uh, take either of those questions? Well, I'll take NBC, but Anna, do you want to go at the other one first? And I don't think that they're so their only strategy in the federal cases is delay. And I I just I, Trump is never going to plea out to any of these charges. I doubt that uh, the federal cases that they would want to let him plea to anything. So I just don't really see how even if in these state cases people are pleading like it's not going to change their strategy because their only strategy really, I think, is is delay. But I would be curious to see what everyone else thinks. You know, I, I'm a little, um, you know, I, maybe I'm cynical, but there were a lot of guilty pleas in the Proud Boys case. This is maybe comparing apples to oranges, but and a lot of those people never testified and they signed cooperation agreements. And it turns out you know, they they were not, I, I assume, I mean, no no explanation is given, but you hear stuff uh, and, you know, they're very recalcitrant people. How much credibility does somebody like, you know, Sidney Powell have at this point? So I, I don't put a lot of credence in this changing everything. I, I, now, what I don't have, I don't have as good an idea as you, Anna, about exactly what was going to come in here, you know, like, because the Coffee County stuff, to the extent you can isolate that, that's really not, you know, the the core of the the D.C. indictment. I'm not sanguine about the idea that she's going to blow everybody out of the water, you know, with, with some big cooperation uh, agreement. I agree. I don't, th- I, I agree with you both, actually. I, I don't think 
Trump has a strategy for trial, except to throw up a lot of dust. And I don't think um, uh, his his strategy is to prevent trial, uh, not to uh, or to delay trial, not to uh, actually discredit, like not to actually contest the charges meaningfully. And I also don't think he's um, in a position that that she materially changes things, except maybe by giving some color, because uh, as a number of questions we have coming point out, she's a bit of a nut and uh, she's going to be a a, a very difficult cross-examination for any side that puts her on in a litigation. So uh, I, I do think having her tell you what she knows about what happened in certain meetings, about certain interactions with people that she may have had may be very useful as a factual matter, but it's, I doubt she's going to testify at least not on anything that's really important. Well, and I, and I, I, I agree with you on that. And this does go to some of the questions we have coming, but I will also say that I think a big question is, this question of what documents she has that she can turn over that maybe were not received by the January 6th committee that have not been received maybe by federal invested. Like I, 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 you know, the documentation question is a big one that could be really interesting to see maybe some of these communications that she has not previously turned over that she potentially now will. And, and she can authenticate those documents and that kind of thing and, and do things that don't necessarily go to her credibility as a witness who has perceived things in the world and, and listened to conversations, but just has documentation. And, and then, you know, like you said, can speak to investigators, you know, off the witness stand and and provide them with information that they can then go and find things out about independent of Sidney Powell. Right. Look for her. And this maybe answers some of the existing questions. I, I think the value of Sidney Powell is what she can tell investigators, not what she can be presented to as evidence of as to a jury. You know, the cross-examination would begin with where did the phrase release the Kraken come from? And it would get weirder from there. And so I, yeah, I really think that's a, don't look for the blockbuster uh, Sidney Powell testimony. On the other hand, if you want to understand the relationship between Sullivan Strickler and Michigan and Coffee County and the Kraken litigation and testimony before three or four state legislatures, she can probably uh, tell you some things you don't know. Oh, th- there was the NBC question. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Go ahead, Roger. So, uh, um, yeah, NBC uh, and also uh, before NBC, there was a similar application from the Press Coalition, which is a group of uh, big media companies. They're partly, you know, there's this federal rule of criminal procedure 53 that says you can't take photos or broadcast from the court. And um, so... One argument is that, the, you know, a First Amendment argument that that's unconstitutional. Uh, that's a long shot. 
And then one argument is that Rule 53, it's sort of a textualist lawyer argument that, well, what if we relayed it from the courtroom to our studio and then broadcast it from the studio? It doesn't violate. Um, Can I just say, I love that argument. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that's a long shot as well. Although, uh, uh, so um, I, ha- I have to say it's a, the NBC brief is over 40 pages and I, I haven't gotten through it. So maybe there's something that uh, uh, will, would, would, will bowl me over eventually. But um, I think it, it, we all, we have to consider them both long shots. Yeah, I would just say uh, this is a longstanding federal court rule it's not uh it's not like it's never been tested before and uh the explanation but we really want to is not one that i think the federal courts are likely to look uh it with a friendly eye on oh and one other thing just uh, the doj will oppose it and incidentally it's the doj not the special counsel and i i think they sort of have you know generally they always try to defend the almost always try to defend the constitutionality of federal statutes and the federal rules of criminal procedure have the status of statutes. Right. All right. So Aaron asks, if Trump were to be convicted and imprisoned, what steps should the Justice Department take to ensure the public's trust, particularly in light of prevalent conspiracy theories among Trump's followers? Uh, You know, I don't know that there's a simple answer to this question. Extreme transparency would be the start. Uh, You want there to be as few questions that don't have clear answers as possible. You would want there to be a a fairly clear answer if he were still a presidential candidate at that point to the question of what are the rules for federal prisoners who are also major party presidential candidates? That's a situation that we've never faced before and never even faced a version of until um, since Eugene Debs ran for president from federal prison in Georgia in 20, in 1920, you know, and then the third is you're going to want some way of making sure that people have as much access to the evidence as they humanly can possibly have without um, uh, you know, releasing video, which is, of course, not allowed. See previous conversation about uh, of, of of the trial itself. Does anybody have anything to add to that? Just that it's completely hopeless. That you, this will you will never get anywhere. You know, look, the JFK assassination has uh, is not solved. You know, RFKs isn't solved. You know, nothing is ever solved you know, with the conspiracy group. On the other hand, I do want to make an, you know, an encouraging, uh, saying encouraging words about this. Uh, Roger and I are old enough to remember and have been working for an organization affiliated with Court TV at the time of the OJ prosecution. And after the OJ Simpson prosecution, uh, which was the last trial of anything like this spectacle, uh, a very large percentage of surveyed uh, African-Americans believed that OJ was innocent and believed that there was a conspiracy. You know, nobody surveys that question anymore, but I don't think that's true anymore. 
And I do think that sometimes when a conspiracy theory, uh, sometimes conspiracy theories do die down and go away. And the interesting thing about that is that the judicial proceeding in that case, of course, acquitted OJ. Um, and so at some level sort of validated the conspiracy theory, and yet it went away anyway. So I agree with Roger that it's totally hopeless, but, you know, keep hope alive, man. One one other thing, just, uh, you know, what would be really great is if you can't broadcast this thing, I mean, you, you ought to be able to tape it just for history's sake. I, I think I saw somebody else recommending, but I mean, this is such a historical document, and eventually it, it needs to be out there. That's a really interesting point, and uh, I don't think does violate the rules if it were ordered by the court. Okay, uh, we gotta, we got to pick up the pace and go through these questions relatively quickly. So quick questions, quick answers. John Hawkinson, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. Can I just flag my note in the chat about Jeff Clark having had a bar disciplinary pre-hearing this morning? I don't know if anyone caught it. I, I did not appreciably. I assume nothing, you just, nothing to say on that? I, I saw that it was happening, but didn't have a chance to watch, unfortunately. So now. I think it was principally about whether his being indicted in, in Fulton County uh, would affect, you know, should, should allow them to delay the bar proceeding. And it was taken under advisement, but I don't know the, the arguments. So my actual question was, it seems to me that Ken Chesbrough will really appreciate Sidney Powell having pleaded out and removed herself from his case since she's a whack job. Uh, and it makes me wonder if he encouraged it. But by the same token, doesn't the Fulton DA now have a harder time against Chesborough? Uh, and that's something they'd surely be aware of. So they ought to have been even more reluctant to offer this plea deal that would facially seem to give her pretty low penalties. So so how do we analyze that? And, and maybe there's a prosecutorial ethics question in there. I don't know. All right. So I will give a couple quick thoughts on this and then turn it over to Anna. Uh, my thoughts are the following. First of all, Chesborough specifically asked for severance from Powell for exactly this reason, that she's a nut and I don't want to sit at a defense table with her and have the jury assess us next to one another um, uh, because that will taint me. I want to go to trial alone. And that motion was denied, but it has now been effectively granted by dint of this of this plea. So Chesborough, in fact, gets what he wants. There is no prosecutorial ethics question here. In my view, she was offered essentially the same deal that uh, Hall was offered a few weeks ago. It's clearly also on the table, by the way, for Chesborough, or at least it was, um, and he turned it down. So they're clearly making something like this deal available to the first, at least the first few people who come forward. And yes, it is a bit of a windfall for Chesborough. It's still nuts, in my view, for him to go to trial, given the disparity in time that he could get if he's convicted of multiple felonies, including Rico, or as Quinta would say, the Rico, than if he were to take this deal. Anna, what, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, look, I, I think that in some my gut reaction was to think that, uh, you know, Chesbro might be kind of happy about this. I, I certainly don't think that, you know, it was encouraged on on their part. But I I did kind of think, you know, maybe they they that team will be happy about this. But at the same time, I mean, you've got to 
realize that, you know, there's a big difference between being severed from someone else's case. And then, you know, they, they plead guilty with, uh, an agreement to cooperate with the prosecution. Uh, so I think ultimately, you know, all things considered any of these defendants in a RICO prosecution, pleading out and agreeing to cooperate is not going to be something that any of these defendants who are planning to go to trial will feel very good about. Uh, and I think that especially, you know, knowing that Chesbro's team uh, had re- rejected a plea offer previously, I, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I, I really got to think that um, there's probably some discussions going on today uh, with their client about what uh, their next move is, because now that Sidney Powell has pleaded, like Ben said, no one wants to be the last person to plea. Um, and it's better to get in, you know, now while you can before uh, the deals start to get a little bit less sweet. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm really curious over the next few days to to see. Um, but I, I'm I'm just I don't agree that that this is something that they're thinking is ultimately a good thing. Um, but, you know, I don't know. All right. Uh, Josh asks, apparently Laro was not appropriately admitted to the appeals court bar, which came up when he filed the appeal from the gag order. Does this matter? Does anybody know what the D.C. Circuit's practice is on people who file appeals without having been admitted pro hoc vice to the D.C. Circuit? I think it's like really like, I don't think it's a big deal. I think that this is something that happens and all they have to do is file a little form and it's not a big deal at all. I uh, did look this up before and um, they sent him a letter yesterday being like, you're not registered. You need to submit an application. There's an application fee of like $238 and then that's all he really seems to need to do. They've also added a bunch of apparent appellate lawyers. Uh, I don't know if that's for this or not, but the Missouri Solicitor General and so on. All right. Uh, Anonymous attendee asks, can Trump's attorneys be held accountable if he breaks the gag order? This is a very interesting question. Normally, these gag orders uh, uh, apply less to parties than they do to the lawyers in question the lawyers being officers of the court, the court has authority to order them around. Those First Amendment issues are much more muted there. When you are the defendant uh, and you're not there by your own free will, the the First Amendment issues are a little bit heightened. Uh, That said, if Trump violates the gag order, it will not be his attorneys who are sanctioned for it. It will be Trump. Do you agree with that, Roger? Yes. And and uh, I mean, especially this client over whom no one has any control. But there was also discussion during the hearing about, well, what's going to happen if he violates? And the judge threw some things out. Uh, special counsel uh, Molly Gaston threw some things out. Nobody said we'll punish the lawyer. All right. Anonymous attendee also asks, on a more lighthearted note, any comments about the woman who interrupted and approached Trump during his civil fraud trial in New York 
Is this the kind of circus atmosphere y'all expect over the next year plus? I would say yes. <laughs> yeah, else- one word answer. Absolutely. I think I think in a lot of ways, the civil trial is kind of a preview of what we're going to get. Uh, and I am certain that things like this will happen again. Okay. Shannon asks, Quinta, have you or anyone else been watching the Eastman bar hearing? What do you think of his defense? He seems to be doubling down on election interference and his witnesses seem kooky. Uh, so I have not been watching the the hearing just because it's been taking in a pretty extraordinarily long amount of time. And so I just haven't been able to keep up with it. Um, but yes, it it is. The hearing is ongoing. I think they're supposed to wrap up with the hearing soon. I I think that Eastman is a good example of the first category of sort of Trump defendants and co-defendants that I sketched out earlier, the people who are really just doubling down and sort of going full MAGA, so to speak. Jeffrey Clark would be another. Um, But Eastman, yeah, is clearly, he's not backing down. He's arguing that his legal theories were were merited and certainly should not be subject to to bar discipline. So I will be interested to see where this goes, to say the least. All right. We are now back to Nathan's original question, and I'm going to do this in order Roger, Quinta, Anna, Heyman, and I will go last. What leader in history or fiction reminds you most of Trump? Roger. Gee, I don't uh, have a good one. Um, um, Some people have told me Berlusconi, but I don't really know enough about uh, Italian politics. Bolsonaro certainly comes to mind. Um, I've been thinking about people in... uh, Dr. Strangelove, but I, I can't really uh, grasp onto one. And I'm trying to think of my Jersey Kaczynski uh, uh, novels, but um, no, I, 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 I'm afraid I, I can't pull something out. All right. Roger goes with maybe Berlusconi, maybe somebody from Strangelove or Jersey Kaczynski novels. Quinta, what you got for us? I think it's really hard because he's so he's so sweet, generous. Um, so I will give two kind of half answers. One is the first thing that came to mind is uh, the wonderful production of King Lear that was recently in D.C. with Patrick Page. Um, there's definitely Trump echoes to that. However, I think that Lear has a much more... Uh, rich and interesting inner life than Trump does. So I I, I don't want to uh, insult Lear by suggesting that there's too much of a similarity there. The other thing is I the movie that I think best captures the experience of having Trump as a leader uh, is the wonderful Armando Iannucci film, The Death of Stalin. Um, I am not comparing Trump to Stalin, but I am comparing the uh, sort of chaotic anchorless energy of being in that kind of space where you just have no idea what's going to happen next. And it could be very stupid or it could have enormous importance. Um, And I would recommend that to anyone who is uh, processing the Trump era. Anna, what's your nomination? Yeah. I mean, it is hard because I always say that it's, you can't make good art about the Trump era and because it, it was just so, and it is just so 
I don't know. It's just really hard to make art about it. And so therefore, I'm not really sure that I have a great uh, analogy or answer for you. But I do kind of think that there's elements of both the Wizard of Oz and the um, Han, uh, the Hans uh, Christian Andersen fairy tale, the emperor with no clothes. Uh, on one hand, you know, Trump is kind of a Wizard of Oz character because he tries to manufacture his own you know, persona that and claims to be something that he's we all kind of know that maybe he's not or that people eventually discover that he is not. But then on the other hand, there's elements of the emperor with no clothes, because it's more of like, he kind of in some ways truly does think of himself as this great leader. And it's every everyone else who is kind of propping him up and and uh, kind of, you know, not telling him or or, or kind of buying into this fiction of what he he believes about himself. I don't know if that makes sense. So we're somewhere in between those two things. And I'm not sure which one it is. All right. What you got for us, Heyman Han? Well, I actually did have an original answer for this a while ago because I think that he reminds me the most of the Sun King, Louis XIV, um, in part because of the whole Guggenheim gold toilet situation and how Louis XIV was really into himself and like really wanted to create these very ostentatious things. And so the disanalogy, of course, is that Louis XIV was actually pretty good at his job insofar as he did consolidate a lot of power for France at the time. Uh, so maybe, maybe it doesn't work completely, but I think that there's an element of egotistical, um, self kind of creating and self promotingness that reminds me a lot of Louis XIV with with Trump and also the way that he kind of controls his people, like the way that Louis held court was very um, thoughtful and manipulative. So I think that he is for me, a kind of wannabe Louis the 14th, a, a wannabe sun King. All right. I will wrap this up with uh, I think the definitive answer to this question. Trump is the alien from the 1979 movie Alien by Ridley Scott. Uh, just think about it. Uh, it starts by attaching itself to your face, implanting uh, the embryo in your uh, intestines. It bursts out through the stomach of the Republican Party, uh, grows and uh, kills everybody one by one on the ship until the last person standing uh, 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 in a memorable performance of Jack Smith by uh, Sigourney Weaver, blows Trump out through the airlock and into space. Uh, that is uh, the definitive answer to the question. Watch Alien again. It's all about the Trump era. All right. You have been watching Trump Trials and Tribulations. And uh, we will be back next week, uh, Thursdays at four. See you all next week. Hello, everyone. Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson here tuning in for a special supplemental edition of our Trump Trials and Tribulations series. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
I am here with Lawfare's intrepid court correspondent, Anna Bauer. This morning, and that is the morning of Friday, October 20th, we had a big development. Another co-defendant of former President Trump in the Fulton County, Georgia prosecution. This is Ken Chesbro, a lawyer involved in the Trump campaign in 2020 uh, and various efforts to at least as alleged to subject uh, subvert the results of that election has now pleaded guilty. Anna Bauer has been closely following the proceedings. She is the person who broke the news on Twitter, beating uh, mainstream media to the punch on this particular front. Anna, tell us what you saw go down this morning, what played out in this plea. And then I want to get into a little bit about the significance of it. Yeah, Scott, the cheese no longer stands alone He because he pleaded out this morning. Uh, so this follows, as you said, this uh, surprise plea agreement from Chesbro's co-defendant, uh, Sidney Powell. If folks remember, those two were set to go to trial. This was the day that 450 jurors came into court in Fulton County to start filling out those jury questionnaires. And we were expecting that on Monday we would see, you know, voir dire start and all the jury questioning start. And we still have a trial for Ken Chesbro. But yesterday it really seemed like the temperature had been uh, kind of risen in terms of the pressure on Chesbro after his co-defendant, Sidney Powell, pleaded out. Uh, she got a very good plea agreement. She, you know, plea, pleaded to several misdemeanor charges and, and, and will be on probation for about six years. Uh, but considering the seriousness of the charges against her related to computer trespass in Coffee County, uh, the original indictment charged her with a RICO conspiracy. So that was a very generous plea deal. And of course, no defendant wants to be the last person to plea because over time, the deals tend to get a little bit less sweet as time goes on. Uh, and so I think that there was a sense amongst reporters and, and court watchers that we might see something happen with the Chesbro case as well. So I think that people were really watching uh, to, to see what happened. My understanding uh, from talking to sources is that it, you know, there was were discussions yesterday between Chesbro's team and Fulton County prosecutors uh, that continued on into this morning. Uh, Mr. Chesbro went in this morning to report a proffer statement. Uh, that is a statement, you know, that prosecutors can uh, uh, use to kind of uh, understand what he knows or what his uh, potential testimony might uh consist of. And, and then, uh, you know, around 12 o'clock, uh, I, uh, you know, I'd been hearing from, from various people that, you know, something was coming together. Um, and, and around noon, we, we got word that indeed uh, a plea deal had been struck. Um, the terms of the plea deal, he is the first defendant in Fulton County to plead to a felony charge. So that is very significant. He's 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 pleaded to a, a charge of conspiracy to commit filing of false documents. That, of course, relates to the uh, so-called fake elector scheme in which uh, Chesbro is alleged to have been the architect of the scheme to, you know, submit a false slate of electors 
who uh, voted for Donald Trump as opposed to Joe Biden in several swing states where Joe Biden had won the popular vote um, and had been certified as the victor in many of those states. Um, and yet these folks got together on December 14th, 2020 and, and submitted electoral certificates for Donald Trump. Uh, so that relates to that. It was only a single felony charge. Uh, he will get approximately five years of probation, which could ultimately ultimately be reduced to about three years, um, depending on uh, some circumstances and, you know, whether or not he uh, meets some of uh, some conditions and stays out of trouble. He gets first offender status, which is important uh, because it means that after, you know, staying out of trouble, trouble for several years and meeting the requirements of Georgia's first offender act, he could eventually basically have that charge kind of erased and he'll be able to honestly say that he's never been convicted uh, of a felony or, or of any crime. So uh, and then importantly for Chesbro, who is an attorney and, and has, you know, is licensed in several states, uh, this will not be considered a, a crime of moral turpitude, which is one of the conditions that we've seen in both the Scott Hall and the Sidney Powell plea deals. And the reason for that is that that could be relevant to any kind of bar disciplinary proceedings that that um, might be brought against Mr. Chesbro. I believe that there is at least one bar disciplinary proceeding that he has been brought against him already. Um, but so other than that, there's a few special conditions. Again, these are some that we've seen before in the Scott Hall and Sidney Powell plea deals. There's a restitution agreement for $5,000, a hundred hours of community service and the Ben Wittes favorite, which is, uh, writing a letter of apology to the citizens of Georgia. Um, so I think that summarizes what happened and, and, and what the plea agreement, uh, consists of, but it's a really big development in this case. And, um, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next four months because I was expecting to be at trial every day. Well, I'm excited you have a little bit more well-earned free time and spare time, hopefully in the next few months before things get underway with the next waves of trials. Let's talk a little bit about strategy here, because it was interesting. Of course, Shesbro and Powell were unique because they are the ones who had pushed to have these early trials, these speedy trials. Um, very consciously said, we want to vindicate our cases early. Uh, and then they lost on the initial phase lost on the their arguments as to why this matter should be dismissed and then quickly appear to have pled out. Do we have a sense about how how those two actions related to each other was the opportunity to plea perhaps part of the speedy trial logic? Uh like you said there's an incentive to go early that also allowed them to test their case and something I've seen some people talking about which makes some sense to me is that by offering a plea deal and particularly what by some accounts might be a fairly generous plea deal it allows Fannie Willis's office to get out of having to preview their case before the big trial comes with former President Trump and an array of who are arguably bigger fish. Although Powell and Chesbro are not, are not, they're at least medium sized fish. They're not insignificant fish. Do we have a sense about how that might have played in here? Was this part of the strategy from the outset for one or both of them? I mean, look, I think that it was really smart of these attorneys to make these speedy trial demands. It was a move that many people did not expect. I didn't expect it. I thought that all of these defendants, I assumed, would, you know, try to delay 
it's the equivalent of kind of, you know, throwing a nuclear bomb into the proceeding when you have 19 uh, co-defendants and the state is not expecting to bring any of those people to trial for at least six months. And they're saying that they want to try everyone together. And they're saying that the trial is going to take four plus months with uh, 150 witnesses. So I think that if it was a part of the strategy to maybe get a sweeter plea, it probably was very effective because in many ways, you know, prosecutors are not going to want to show Trump and the, you know, quote, big fish, a preview of their case in chief. Yes, it's true that all of those defendants will have discovery. And so they will have the evidence against them to look at. But, you know, there's something to this idea that uh, a defense counsel for Trump, for Giuliani, for Eastman, uh, for Meadows, would be able to have the opportunity if Chesbro and Powell went to trial to sit in court every day or watch the live stream every day and see exactly how the state is, uh, you know, presenting the evidence of this RICO conspiracy. And so by avoiding all of that, the prosecutors get to uh, avoid the preview and, and the kind of strategic advantage that would go to these defense counsel who are not a part of the speedy trial demand defendants. So I, I think it gave Chasbro and Powell a little bit of leverage in that respect. Um, and, and I think that, you know, they, those, those attorneys got really good deals for their clients. And I think that it ultimately is a strategy that paid off for them. So, uh, you know, I don't, of course, we're talking about counterfactuals. I don't know what, what would have happened if they did go to trial, but it seems like this was something that was, uh, ended up being a strategic advantage for both Chesbro and Powell. So one comment I saw reaction from one of former President Trump's lawyers in the Fulton County matter, I believe, if I recall correctly, although I might have the details off on that, his one of his reactions was that it was telling the fact that the DA's office in both cases dropped the RICO charge, um, which is, of course, is kind of the umbrella charge that's being applied against all the defendants in this case. In some ways, the most serious ones um, uh, would have to be dropped in this case because I believe it's a felony uh, if they were trying to avoid permanent longstanding felony uh, kind of matters. Do we have a sense of that entering in here? Of course, you know, you would, there might be inclined, the DA's office might be inclined to drop charges on which they have sort of legal concerns. But is there any sign of that entering into or any sense of the logic behind which charges they stuck with, which which charges they didn't, other than that apparent uh, desire, as you've already noted, to avoid the felony because these are both lawyers and it affects their bar status? Yeah, I mean, I think that the avoiding a felony and the bar status thing is a big part of it. I also just I would need to look at uh, some of the questions around is a RICO charge a crime of moral turpitude in most jurisdictions and that kind of thing. I, I, I'm not sure how that factors in. But I, I think that, you know, it, the Trump defense attorneys can say that all they want, but it doesn't change the fact that you know, what Chesbro and Powell pleaded to is not necessarily the extent of the significance of how, of their cooperation, right? Because the way that I read these plea agreements, it's not as though I, I've seen some arguments from people, for example, with Sidney Powell, that because she only pleaded to charges related to the Coffee County events, the breach of voting systems there, that that means that, you know, in some ways her cooperation is less valuable, but but when you look at the agreement, I mean, I, 
I do not read it to to mean that her testimony would be limited to just uh, the events in Coffee County. And, and we know that, you know, in a RICO case, really all you have to prove is, is, I mean, depending on some, you have to prove some predicate acts and that kind of thing. But, uh, to some extent, you, you know, it, it's just very helpful to prove even one of those overt acts that are in the indictment. One of those in, o- overt acts, for example, is uh, the contentious White House meeting that was held on December 18th and in, in which Trump uh, suggested that Sidney Powell may be appointed as special counsel and that uh, there were discussions about seizing voting machines through an executive order. You know, Sidney Powell can testify to that. And that is something that is really helpful to the state's case. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of documents that she can probably provide and that kind of thing. And I think the same is true of Mr. Chesbro as well, that you know, even if he didn't plead out to the RICO charge, that doesn't mean that his testimony or that, you know, documents he can provide or other types of investigative information that he can provide are in any way less helpful to the prosecution. So I, I'm not really buying this idea that, you know, in some way it's it, it really means something that that RICO charge was dropped this is just kind of how Fonnie Willis has operated in the past, where the people who come in early get really good deals. They they usually don't get jail time. And then, you know, if you look at some of the previous cases, like the Atlanta Public Schools cheating RICO case, as, as time goes on, those deals get a little bit uh, less good and people potentially will end up with jail time. And then it's really just, and in the end, just a few of the quote, big fish who are left standing. And uh, the state has a lot of cooperators because of their efforts to flip people early on. So you're leading right into what I think is maybe the most important question looking forward coming out of this, which is the scope of cooperation they've agreed to. I didn't get a chance to watch uh, Chesbro's proceeding where he uh, pled out to this, but I did watch the one for Cindy Powell the other day. And I thought it was really notable that it the terms of the agreement as they were read out, actually, I haven't seen the written copy, but as if she read them out loud, was that they agreed to participate in any and all proceedings involving any of their co-defendants. And that's notable because, of course, a lot of their co-defendants, and particularly, for, well, one of their co-defendants, former President Trump, and a lot of the matters that are at issue in Fulton County are also at issue in the January 6th trial um, that's happening in federal court in Washington, D.C., do we have a sense yet, or am I uh, right or wrong in inferring that that scope of that cooperation agreement could include testimony in the federal trial as well as any state trials? Because um, it didn't appear to have any sort of caveat that would suggest it's only matters pursued by this office and the use of the any and all proceedings language seemed pretty telling to me. And if that's the case, what role might Powell and particularly now Chesbro, is, that's a new fact, how may they enter into the broader uh, arguments regarding former President Trump in that case? Like what parts of their internal conversations, their relationships can they shed light on if they are now cooperating? 
Yeah, so it's a good question and one that I'm trying to uh, get more information on. I it's not clear to me as it is to as it, as it is to you as well whether or not that language is broad enough to cover cooperation or testimony in the federal case as well. My instinct is to say that probably no, it it doesn't require that. Um, but I I'm not sure because like I said, the language is very broad. But I. You know, I agree with Ben in the discussion that we had yesterday where he said, even if there's not some sort of um, already existing agreement with federal prosecutors as well, and even if this doesn't necessarily cover uh, the federal future testimony or cooperation in the federal case, entering into this plea agreement in the state case that does overlap very much with the DC indictment in which both of these people are have been identified as unindicted co-conspirators both Sidney Powell and Chesbro have been you know publicly identified or believed to be I think it's co-conspirator 5 and co-conspirator 3 in the Trump indictment and you know you don't enter into this state agreement and not expect that at some point in the future you're going to have to either at least hope for a plea agreement from federal prosecutors or or some kind of immunity deal from federal prosecutors. Um, of course, they are not charged at the federal level yet. But, you know, th- these the events of of both do overlap. You know, they relate to efforts to overturn the election through, with in Chesbro's case, the uh, false uh, slate of electors. You know, Sidney Powell is someone who uh, is mentioned in the federal indictment as someone who is kind of uh, playing up all these false claims of fraud around the election. And so I, I do think that it's really significant for the federal case that we have these plea agreements in the Georgia case because even if right now there's no formal agreement, I think it indicates to me that Chesbro and Powell are are likely going to be cooperators in the federal case at some point down the line. Well, we'll have to leave the speculation there for now until we have more facts coming forward. But uh, Anna, we will let you go. Enjoy your weekend with hopefully no more breaking news. Folks, this has been a special supplemental conversation, part of our Trump Trials and Tribulation series. Be sure to tune in live on the internet via YouTube and or Zoom, depending on whether you are a Patreon supporter of Lawfare, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern time for our weekly conversations. Uh, And then keep an eye on our podcast feed afterwards for the audio version that will be released. uh, And this will be appended to that. Until next week, hope you enjoy your weekends and we will see you then. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the one and only Anna Hickey. Folks, you're listening to this. You want to participate. You know you can participate. You can join the conversation, become a material supporter of Lawfare, and you can be the disembodied voice asking the next question on Trump trials and tribulations. How do I do that, you ask? Well, I'll tell you how to do it. You become a material supporter of Lawfare, as hundreds and hundreds of other people have. You do it at lawfaremedia.org support. 
The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only, no longer in China or Taiwan, but now in Istanbul for The Telegraph, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.